The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading for this Sunday will be Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent, two, he, sent two the di- he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they, ha- they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Good to be with you. Glad you're here. Excited to look at our Lord together with you from this amazing text. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you just for always putting your Son on display for us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you come and you, you spotlight him for us. Um, who is like you, O Lord? There's no rock like you, and there's no one like Jesus. And we pray that as we walk through this incredible moment kind of with him again, um, as we read this text, Lord, that you'd show us more and more who Jesus is and more and more of uh, what you want from us due to who Jesus is. So show us that, Lord, and, and show us what that means for, for each person here, our hearts, our minds, our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're just continuing through our study through Luke. I've enjoyed this so much, just seeing Jesus in all this depth, um, all his interactions, his teachings. And this morning we really reach, uh, double meaning here, a mountaintop experience. Okay, It actually happens on a mountain. But it's also like everything in his life has been leading up to this moment. It's a profound moment in the life of Jesus. Basically what's going to happen is just before 
this incredibly important feast of Passover as all these crowds, thousands and thousands of people begin to pour into the city. Jesus is going to kind of come down from the Mountain of Olives and enter into the city of Jerusalem, and he is going to do it as the promised king. So he's got a host following him, and the, uh, the excitement level is very high. The, the uh, expectations are very high. Could this be the one? Is this the king? And last week we saw Jesus claimed Yes, I am the king, verse 28, when he had said these things. What things? He basically said, I'm the king, and now the king is going to come to his city, to his people. So we see already, what is Jesus saying to Israel and to the world and to you and to me? What's he saying? Jesus is saying is that if, if you want to know me, you must know me as your king. It's, it's really fashionable to want to know Jesus in ways other than king. Forgiver? Yeah, I'm not demeaning that. Uh, advice giver, counselor? Yeah, I'm not demeaning that either. Friend? Precious? I'm not demeaning that. But sometimes we want those things without king. And Jesus says, no, you know me as king or you do not. Know me. I come as king. But what kind of king? In a way, we're seeing Jesus' coronation in this passage. And I guess we're, we're sort of familiar with like uh, presidential inaugurations or coronation, I guess. Does anybody watch that of the British, British family? You know, we're, we're familiar with this, but what kind of themes do you get at an inauguration or a coronation of a nation's leader? What do you see? Well, don't you see kind of the wealth and power of the nation displayed? Don't you see a celebration? There's a party going on. And don't you see symbols of patriotism? Uh, we love our nation. So it makes Jesus' coronation so ironic. Instead of power and armies, you have a kind of one man, poor. Sure, followed by crowds, but they're not, it's not an army. He's, he's not riding in on a chariot. Um, there's humility involved. Instead of celebration, Jesus is going to get to the top of the hill and weep. Can you imagine that? You're watching the next inauguration of the next president, and he gets up there, and he starts sobbing. What's happening? And instead of patriotism in Jesus' coronation, he doesn't raise a flag and say, Israel, Israel. He goes to the heartbeat of their society and overturns it. It's so ironic. It's so strange. Why is Luke showing us this? Why is he communicating these things like this? Because we're supposed to see the kind of king Jesus is. You need to see the kind of king Jesus is. Because that's going to show you how to respond to him. It's going to show you how to respond to him. So we're going to see three pictures of Jesus as king. You can see how the text is tied together. Uh, verse 28, and when, verse 41, and when, verse 45, and he, you know, you kind of get this episodic uh, view of things, one, two, three, three pictures of Jesus, and in each one, I want to walk with you and see how Jesus is God's sovereign king, so why do I say that? Well, number one, God's king, he's not just another king, the next in line, he's not just another leader, he's 
the ultimate leader. He's the one, the promised one, the one whom the story is all about, the one we're waiting for. This is God's king. Next word, sovereign king. Why do I throw that word at you? Sovereign. It means he is in control. The supreme authority. And Luke shows us very clearly that Jesus is in charge of his strange coronation. He's in control. Jesus himself is teaching us things about himself as king. And it just reminds us, Jesus actually is, in reality, king. So, so the attitude of this text is not, I hope you guys will receive me as king. Maybe I'll be king one day if I get enough people to sign up. That is totally not what Jesus is saying. I am king. You cannot escape that. You can't get out of that. But you can choose how to respond to it. Three pictures of Jesus as king. Number one, God's sovereign, humble king. His sovereign, humble king. Number two, God's sovereign, judging king. Number three, God's sovereign, overturning king. I guess that's the word I'll use. His sovereign, overturning king. God's sovereign, humble king, judging king, overturning king. First, let's see him as the humble king. So verse 28, as Jesus says, hey, basically, I'm king. He went on ahead. He's going up to Jerusalem from Jericho. Jericho's geographically low. He's got to go up. He's going to go up over the Mount of Olives and then kind of come around a crest and then go down again to Jerusalem. And so it's actually a, I've never been there, maybe one day, but I'm told it's pretty amazing to go up on the Mount of Olives and then come around over the top of the hill and then you come down and you would see Jerusalem laying there. And back in this day, the temple would just it's gold. It's, it's Herod's temple, and it would just explode at you in the sunlight. And so it would be pretty amazing. And then you add to it all the environmental factors that this might be the one, and there's thousands and thousands of people coming into Jerusalem to, to go on this journey and come up and come over with the promised king. Would you, can, you could feel it, the excitement, the tension. But on the way, Jesus wants to pick something up. There's a little village. It's not there anymore, I don't think, as you go up the Mount of Olives. And there's something Jesus wants to pick up on the way. He sends two of the disciples. Verse 30, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a baby donkey. (laughs) Need to pick up a young donkey on the way to Jerusalem. You find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord has need of it. <laughs> Can you imagine being the disciples? Imagine it's you, he picks out. Go into the village. That one? Yeah. Right as you enter it, you're going to see a donkey's colt. Okay? Okay. I want you to untie it. You mean just just take it? Yeah. And when they say, why are you taking my donkey? Just say, the Lord wants it. Got it? Okay. You know, Jesus didn't go to like donkeycult.com and set a reservation, you know, text ahead. Hey, tie up the donkey for me. He hasn't been there. His disciples haven't been there. Do you realize what kind of knowledge he has right now? I know where the donkey is. I know there's a cult of a donkey. I know the donkey's never been ridden. I know where the donkey's tied. I know what the owner of the donkey's going to say. Just go. Okay. 
So you're walking with your friend, you're like, you walk in, there's a donkey. It's a cult of a donkey. You walk over to it, you start untying it, dude walks out, what are you doing with my donkey? And you say, the Lord wants it. And he says, great, take it. Really? Yeah, take, oh, I want him to have it. Everybody knows who the Lord is at this point, okay? They do. And so they bring it back. What are you seeing about Jesus? Remember I used the word sovereign? How sovereign is he? He's sovereign over every detail of the moment. You're not just talking about like, oh, he's in charge of the king, like a normal person is in charge. He's, you know, sovereign. No, no, no. He's in charge of details like where foals of donkeys are tied and what people will say when you start to take it. Intimate knowledge. Deeply sovereign. Divinely sovereign. This is the same person. Remember, somebody will come up to him and say like, my daughter's sick or my servant is sick. And he'll be like, be healed. But you don't know her address. Doesn't matter. But I didn't tell you what kind of sickness it was. Oh, that's cool, I know. Aren't you going to do like a thing? No, I just say be healed. And I know who she is and I know what her problem is and I know how to fix it. And I say be healed and she's healed. And they go back and they'll say things like, what time was it? When it, it was this time? I don't have a watch. I have like a sundial. Uh, but I saw where the sun was. How did he do it? He's sovereign. He's not only sovereign of the moment. He's sovereign of the meaning why do you want a donkey cult when you're entering a city as a king? Uh, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation at all, when Jesus comes back, what's he riding on there? A white horse. I guess it's not that hard to figure out. What do you want to ride when you ride into battle? A baby donkey? You know? Like your sword's like bouncing on the ground as you ride because you're like three feet tall? You know? No, you want a big war horse. But that's not what Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem, not the first time. He's going to ride a little donkey that's never been ridden. What does this mean? Why? Why are you doing this? It's so strange. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's in charge of the meaning. Look at what the prophet Zechariah said 500 years before Jesus. It's amazing. Zechariah 9, verse 9. What's the first command? Rejoice. How much? Greatly. This is so great. If you just tasted this, you'd be full of joy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. Why are you shouting? Because you're rejoicing. You're so happy. Yes. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's coming. What's he like? He's righteous. He loves what's right. Aren't you tired of corrupt kings? He's righteous. And he has salvation. He's bringing salvation. It's going to free you, set you free. And what else is he like? He's humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, a full of a donkey. What's he like? He's a humble king. You know, the, the beauty of Jesus is seen in the combination of his diversity of characteristics. 
In one sense, there's nobody more powerful, nobody more righteous, nobody more just, nobody stronger, nobody wiser, nobody more intimidating. His eyes are like fire. And there's no one more humble. There's no one more compassionate. There's no one more gentle. And it's the same man. What a king. That's the king we need. He's humble, mounted on a donkey. Look at verse 10. The prophet continues, I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim on the war horse from Jerusalem. No more war. The battle bow shall be cut off. No more war. And he shall speak, what? Peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He comes humbly bringing, making peace. He comes to make peace. Rejoice. The king comes humbly with salvation to make peace. Isn't that beautiful? Well, the crowd sort of sees it. They sort of get it. Look at verse 35. The disciples bring the donkey to Jesus. And what does the crowd begin to do? Throwing their cloaks on the colt. That's the disciples. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they've seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Why do you throw your coat down in front of the donkey? Uh, there's, a, there's a way in which your coat represents you and it identifies you in the ancient world. And um, when, you, when you see someone as your king and you want to honor them as your king, it even happened if you, if you saw an article about the king of Thailand recently who was uh, inaugurated, coronated. People were lying on their face before him, like to show deference, reverence, okay? Um, so by throwing your coat down in front of Jesus, it's a symbolic act to say, I am submitted to you. Because it's going to be difficult for the full of a cult to like walk over all the bodies in front, right? Let's just put coats down. It symbolizes, I'm submitted to you, joyfully submitted to you. I'm yours. You have my allegiance. You have my support. And then it this swells here to the point of oh, worship. They're quoting from Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes. You're the one. You're the Messiah. Glory in the highest. This is it. This is the day our long-awaited king has come to us. Look at the response of the Pharisees, verse 39. By the way, this is the last, I think, this is the last interaction quote from the Pharisees in the entire gospel. This is the last thing you get. We've had a lot of fun with them, haven't we, over the last two years? This is it. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why do they say that? Well, first of all, they realize that the crowd is completely out of their control at this point. They, they're used to trying to talk to the crowd and manipulating the crowd. It's over. They lost. The crowd is swelling in favor of Jesus right now. So they give up talking to the crowd. And so they go to the only person, at least they can get uh, sound waves in his eardrums. What do they call him, by the way? Teacher. Okay. Hey. We're happy to give you this, you know, level. Good Teacher. Right? Who's in on Jesus being a good teacher? We are. Is that as far as you're going to go? You know who else thinks Jesus is a good teacher? Uh, atheists, Mormons, Muslims, Buddhists, Gandhi. 
Everybody says Jesus is a good teacher. And then they want to say, let's just cap it off right there. That's what the Pharisees say. Hey, tell your disciples, right? This is getting too big. This is going too high for you. This is getting into worship. This is getting into praise. This is getting into Messiah stuff. Let them know. Just send them back. Hey, I'm just a good teacher. Send them back. You're not the king. It's a human heart right here. Happy to have Jesus as a good teacher. But then I can keep him at arm's length. I can take some advice. But king, then he owns me. Stay a good teacher. Look what Jesus says. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What does that mean? What does that mean? There's two major theories on it. I'll give you both. First, I'm just going to give you one. I think they can both be included. One is, you know, there's kind of echoes in the prophets about creation worshiping God. It's a a personification of trees, mountains, hills. Trees will clap their hands. Mountains will sing. And it's the idea that I'm God and I've made it. And even in their creation, their design, they worship me. So if that's what Jesus is saying, and I think that's probably part of what Jesus is saying, if these people don't worship, creation still worships. And this is a proper response, because what are they saying about Jesus? Hey, Jesus, you're just a good teacher. And Jesus says, yeah, creation worships me. Creation worships me. You can't be just a good teacher and say that. Because if you're just a good teacher, creation doesn't worship you. And if you say creation worships you, you're no longer a good teacher. Yeah? If it does worship you, you're the divine king. I come as king. I come as king. So what do we see in this first picture? Jesus is God's sovereign, humble king who came to make peace. What should your response be? See the symbols? Lay down your coat. What's that mean? Surrender your heart to him as king. And do it with joyful praise. Rejoice. He's come bringing salvation. Second picture. Verse 41, he comes around the bend, comes down the hill. He drew near, saw the city. There it would be just glowing in the sun, the temple. Oh, what a moment. What a moment. The king comes to his city, and then the whole crowd. Wouldn't this be, almost be awkward? The whole crowd pauses as our king. I mean, what do you expect a king to do as he comes into his capital? Arms raised, smiling, right? Something like that. He stops, and what does he do? He weeps, and it's a strong word. It's like sobbing. It's like heaving. You're his disciple. You've been, hey, praise the blessed the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The horse walked over, or the, the colt walked over your coat, you know, and then all of a sudden, he's weeping. What are you What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Look at what he says, verse 2. The king is a prophet. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Now they're hidden from your eyes. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Jerusalem, the capital city. Who's he talking to? The nation as a whole, right? Is he talking about every single individual in the nation? Of course not. Of course not. But he's talking about the nation as a whole. They miss something. And it breaks his heart to the point of weeping. What happened? 
Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for, for what? Peace. Now plug this in. We just heard about this from Zechariah. What is it? Who is it that brings peace? The king. The promised king. That's our peace. Lay your coat down. Praise him. That's our peace. And he says, you did not know the things that make for peace, which means what did they not know? They did not know him as their king. Moreover, they would not know him as their king. Would that you had known the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden. Now they're hidden. What? What does that mean? Has Jesus done everything to show and establish that he is God's promised king for three years? Infinitely. Yeah, of course. Obviously. They didn't know the things that make for peace. Is this a, is this a, a brain's problem for them, ultimately? He healed a bunch of people. I just... I don't get it. He called everybody to follow him. I, I don't understand. No. Was it explicit that Jesus says, I'm king? Yes. Why didn't they know it? Is it because there's no evidence? No. Then why? They don't want him as their king. They don't want him as their king. You know, even some of this crowd is very fickle. It's very fickle. When we saw that they were praising Jesus, you remember what the main thing was? It was miracles. Hey, which is great. Praise Jesus for his miracles, right? Here's the problem with miracles. Um, you're sick. Jesus does a miracle. How do you feel now? Great. Praise God. Um, does that mean he's your king? Not necessarily. Anybody ever come to Jesus for what he gives them? Without wanting to serve him? All day. Don't, don't we kind of want Jesus as a middleman? Hey, Jesus, my relationships are a mess. If I come to you, will you fix my, my spouse? And then I can have what I really want, which is what? A happy marriage. Jesus, could you be the middleman? Could you be the vending machine for me? Could you get me? I'm sick. I need health. Jesus, could you give me some health? Oh, can you give me some inner peace? Can you help me fix my budget? Thanks, Jesus. Now, can you move along? I want to go on living my life. In like three, four days, this crowd, some of this very crowd is going to be screaming, crucify him. Because he won't do what, he, what they wanted him to do. Kick out the Romans. Take over Herod. Feed everybody. Change the economy. Change the, change the justice system. Fix it now. Give us the wealth we need now. And he won't do it. Crucify him. Because they wanted what he could give. They didn't want him. They wouldn't see it. They didn't want to see it. And so now Jesus says, your chance is over. It's hidden from you now. Your heart's calcified now. It won't come now. Do you see that? Now they're hidden from your eyes. And how does Jesus feel about it? What's he doing as he says this? He's weeping. He's weeping. Look at what he says in verse 43. Judgment's coming. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you, hem you in on every side, tear you to the ground, you and your children within you. Ugh. Historians tell us this is exactly what happened in 70 AD. It 
That's exactly what happened. Uh, Israel rebelled against Rome, and Rome came at them with everything. Rome barricaded the city. Rome surrounded the city. Rome pressed in on the city, and Rome tore the city and its people apart. And we remember again that Jesus is what? Sovereign. And he's proclaimed judgment on them. Why? Not receiving him as king. Look at this key uh, takeaway here. Verse 44, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you do not know the time of your visitation. Here's another, here's another take on the stones crying out. One take is, well, it's creation praising Jesus. You know, if these people stop worshiping, creation will praise me. Here's the other th- take, and I, I think it's pretty strong. If, if the people stop praising me, the stones will cry out, but in what way? I mean, look, he talks about stones right here, verse 44. They will not leave one stone upon another within you. You know, when they, when, actually, when the temple was burnt down, the gold melted, and it went in between the stones. And do you know the, Ro- the Roman soldiers would actually pry apart the stones to get at some of the gold? So, so Jesus is fantastically accurate in saying stones will be torn apart. And so he's also saying that as the stones of the city are torn apart, they're crying out. And what are they saying? Judgment upon this place who had the Son of God in front of their face and rejected him. Jesus is the weeping, judging king, isn't he? Look at his words, 44. They won't leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He came to them. And it's not like, what? I never saw it, right? It's not a lack of evidence. In what way did they not know the time? This was the time to receive him as king. And what did they say repeatedly? No. And what will now come? Judgment. Does this have a message for us today? It's a scary thing that you can go to church. You can even preach the word. You can do so many externally religious things. You can be a good person. You can think Jesus is a good teacher and feel kind of good about yourself. Jesus is saying here, isn't isn't this what he's saying? If you don't receive me as king, there's judgment coming because I'm worthy of being your king. I'm God. I'm the creator. Creation worships me. And so the challenge is here. Do you know the time of your visitation? You. What's the time of your visitation? Well, it's, a, it's, it's hundreds of moments just like now. We're hearing about Jesus from his word. We're comprehending him and his claims. We're looking at his life. Now's the chance to have him as king. He invites you. He he accepts anyone who will turn to him. But now's the chance. And then be careful. Because what if you stay religious and, oh, yeah, Jesus is a good teacher. I like him over there. What if if you say, no, you won't be king over my heart, over my mind? What happens? Judgment. And so we see that Jesus is the judging king who must be what? acknowledged, recognized, received. That's the kind of king he is. It's the only kind of king he is. 
He's humble, bringing peace and salvation. He'll receive anyone. He's also weeping and judging because he is the rightful king. He's God's king. He's our only hope. Last picture. Jesus heads down from the hill after saying this. Where does he go? You know, where do, where do kings go on a coronation? What, where, what would you imagine? Where would you imagine they go? He could go to the palace. Wouldn't you like to see him go to Herod, straighten that guy out? That guy's awful. Go to Herod, bring us political renewal. Anybody need some political renewal? Jesus, go to Herod's palace, straighten that mess out. It's not where he goes. Or how, wouldn't you like to see him to go to, I think it's called Fort Antonia, where, Paul, where Pilate and the Roman soldiers are. Wouldn't you like to see that? Jesus, head on over there. Let's have revolution. Get these tyrants off our backs. If this man can heal with a word, what can he do to his enemies? Bring political revolution. Go to the fort. Knock them out. Wouldn't you like to see Jesus go there? That's not where he goes. You know, ironically, he actually will go visit Herod and Pilate in about four days as he's unjustly tried, mocked, beaten, and executed. That's not where he goes first. Where does he go? The temple. Look at Mark 11, 11. Mark gives us some details I think are pertinent, interesting. Mark 11, 11, it says that when Jesus came down the hill, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. So this is in the evening. When he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Lazarus, Mary, Martha live in Bethany. That's Jesus' home base. That's where he hangs. So it's, it's not far. But he go, do you see how his first entrance in, it's in the afternoon. He goes and checks out the temple. He looks at it, watches it, then goes back to Mary, Martha, Lazarus' place to sleep. And I wonder what's in his mind that evening. We can have a guess because he's coming back in the morning. <laughs> now, if you imagine, you have to imagine this. What do you imagine when you imagine the temple of Israel nearing Passover at around 30 AD? Is it empty? It's packed. There's hundreds of priests. There's businessmen. There's merchants. There's also a temple guard. This place is a full-on, tightly wound institutional operation. And on this next day... You have one man walking into this institution. He has no official role in government. He has no machine guns hanging from his shoulders. He, he doesn't have an army coming with him. But look at what he does. I almost don't know how he did it. Verse 45, the third picture of Jesus that's God King. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. Wow. What's going on? Well, the temple had various courts, so there'd be like an inner, inner, inner court, holy of holies. Only high priests can go there and only sometimes, right? That's God's presence. But then there would be kind of this concentric levels of who could go where. The next court, you've got, you've got priests. Well, anyway, back at the very entrance, you have a court of the Gentiles, and who's that for? Non-Jews. And what is it for? What's it for? 
It's so non-Jews can come and pray to the Lord Almighty. This is how the temple works, right? On the inner courts, there are sacrifices happening. There's incense being offered, and they're, they're symbolic of something, and it means that God in his kindness will take care of your sin problem so that you can enter into his presence. You can be received to come and commune with God because what God is doing for you. That's what the temple is all about. Come into the court. Come and pray. Come and know God. Come and confess. Come and fellowship. Come and commune with the God of the universe. That's what the temple is for. As Jesus walked in that night and went into the Gentile courts, he saw something that made him very angry. He saw a strip mall. He saw in the place where people were supposed to be able to come and pray, extortion. You ever been to an amusement park and you wanted to buy a soda? It was like $37. (laughs) Unless you get the super mega cool cup, $58, but you can get a refill. Um, Thank you, you know. I already spent $9,000 to come in here. I'd be glad to spend another you know, credit card fortune on a Diet Coke. The outer courts of the temple, these people, some people have walked for miles. And the way the high priest Annas had set this up was, you couldn't just bring your animal. You had to have an approved temple animal for sacrifice. And that's going to cost you. But you couldn't just bring normal money. Because you need to have approved temple money to buy the approved temple animal. And that exchange rate, that's going to cost you. And so you had these exorbitant, exploitative, exploitative, how do I say that? You know what I mean. One of those. Abusive, bad, too much. Prices that was especially hard on the poor and the foreigner. This temple has a new God. The God is no longer the Lord Almighty. The God is now money and power. And so when Jesus walks into his temple, he sees the system keeping people from doing what the temple is made to do so that certain high and mighties can be wealthy and powerful. (laughs) and he is mad. I wish I could be a fly on the wall for this one. I wish I could see it. He walks in, and he kicks them out. Mark gives us a little more details. Look at Mark 11, 15. And they came to Jerusalem, Mark 11, 15. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers And the seats of those who sold pigeons. So, a couple things to see. What's he do at the table? It's got all the coins stacked on it with all the super special temple money. It's another another scene where we're like, Jesus, are you a Christian? He's the king. It's his temple. There are things he can do that we're not necessarily supposed to do, right? He's the king. It's his temple. Overturns their stools and realize it was those who sold pigeons. Who needs to buy pigeons in the temple? The poor. 
You are raking my poor people who want to worship me over the coals. And what did, what did the high priest and the temple guard and all the merchants and everybody do about it? And what's amazing is the text doesn't tell you. I don't know, but they could do nothing. Was it the force of his personality? I don't know. Was it supernatural strength that came on him? Is he like Samson? He's driving them out. I assume they all didn't go, oh, okay, you know, take all our money. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. Because he's the sovereign king over his temple. Oh, wow. As he does this, he combines two passages from the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah 56 is one. Look at Isaiah 56, verse 6 and 7. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath doesn't profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my what? House of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifice will be accepted on my altar. For my house should be called a house of prayer for who? Everybody who wants to come. Everybody. Gentiles. Come on. Worship. I'll accept you when you repent. Anybody can come. And the temple system was pushing them out. It's not what my house is for. So then Jesus grabs on to another prophet, the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7, uh, verse 9. Look at what Jeremiah says. 7, verse 9. We steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, the temple, right, which is called by my name and say, we're delivered, only to keep doing all these abominations? Are you really going to live for other gods and then come give me this external junk in the temple? Ugh. Look at verse 11. Has this house, which has been called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? I myself have seen it. What, what, why do robbers need a den? You know, why are they hiding in a cave? Because they're evil, right? The, the police is coming after them or something. Hide in a cave. Where do the robbers hide? In Israel. The temple. Because who do they worship? Anyone other than the real God. Hey, be warned a little bit, right? Uh, can a local church be a den of robbers in a way? Can we go to church, participate in external religious things, but still be worshiping other gods on our insides and our guts? Oh, yeah. Right? Have mercy, right? Have mercy. Unite my heart to fear your name, the psalm says. Have mercy. But what's happening? Well, he's come to overturn his temple. The temple switched gods. We're worshiping money now, crime, power. Jesus has come to overturn that. And I, I love, you know, back to what he said in Mark. You don't have to look at that. But in Mark eleven sixteen, it said he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. I just, I, I'm so amazed by this picture. He wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Do you know what he did to the entire temple function there for a moment? He stopped the whole thing on the week of Passover. Shocking. And yet, what does he do? Verse 47. Back to Luke. Luke, 40, Luke 19, 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. Do you see what he's done? 
He has stopped everything of the old system, calling it corrupt, wiped it out, and he has replaced it with himself. Be in awe. Amazingly, this is what will get him killed. Look at verse 47. He was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. All the powers that be said, enough's enough. Let's kill him. And why? What just happened to their checkbook? It's fine for you to go teach in the valleys or whatever. Go heal some people. Cool. Get in the way of my business. Start saying stuff about my money. About my lifestyle. You're out. This will get him killed. Not yet. The crowd's too high on him. Thursday night, he's betrayed in the middle of the night. By the next morning, right, we've seen it. Zips through these fake trials on a cross Friday afternoon. On a cross Friday afternoon. And it looks like, doesn't it, in that moment, doesn't it look like the king failed? It looks like he failed. He's dead. We got him. But I tell you, and you know this, he is still the sovereign king. And this is what's so amazing. He came to overturn the temple. You you, you remember the story. What happens in the temple as he dies on the cross? The veil is torn from top to bottom. Come on into my presence. Be right with God. Because on Friday, the day you would normally sacrifice the Passover lamb, who was sacrificed? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The way to be forgiven, to have all your sins washed away, the way to be called right with God, The way to know and fellowship with God is no longer through this corrupt system of the temple. It's now through the one man, God's sovereign king, who came to overturn your worship. And he did it through the cross. He did it through the cross. He's the temple, he's the priest, he's the sacrifice, he's the truth. He is eternal life. He rises from the dead, our sovereign king. But what did Jesus come to do first? Is Jesus one day going to transform all the political systems of the world? Come on, Lord, right? But when's it going to be? Tomorrow? Probably not. It's going to be when he returns again. Is Jesus going to fix all societal problems and injustices? Yes, he is. Is it going to be tomorrow? Probably not. It's going to be when he comes again. Now, should his people be involved in these things somehow for his glory? Well, yeah. But was that his first goal for his first visit? Oh, no. He didn't go to Herod's palace. He didn't go to Fort Antonia. Where did he go? The temple. Because what he wants from you most is your worship. He wants to kick out all the false stuff out of your heart and be established as your sweet king over every aspect of life. 
Let's draw it all together. You know, that donkey meant more than we knew, didn't it? He came humbly to make peace. That donkey's going to lead him to a cross where it's the ultimate picture of his humility, and it made peace. It made peace between you and me and God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's a sovereign, humble king who made peace. He's a sovereign, judging king who must be acknowledged. He's the sovereign, overturning king who wants your worship. So how should we respond to him? Number one, know the time of your visitation. When do you have a chance to acknowledge Jesus as king? Right now is a great time. I remember a time in my life, I remember this, where I thought, I believe in Jesus, but I think I'm going to try to be cool and have fun for a little bit, then I'll have him as king. I remember that attitude. God have mercy, and he did, because he could have let me keep going that way, and I could have never come back. There's a thing where you reject him enough and he says, fine, I'll give you what you want. You didn't want me? Fine, I'll give you what you want. And you don't come back. Now's the time. Now's the time. Number two, let him overturn the tables in your heart. I know for most of us, we love Jesus as our king. I do. But I still got some money changers. Do you have any in your heart? Any false gods? Any pockets of idolatry? Where Jesus isn't king, your mind, your heart, your emotions. Sure you do. Where you won't forgive, right? Things like that. Let him overturn the tables of your heart. Let him be your king. Hang on his every word. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose for you. He's trustworthy. Number three. Rejoice. Rejoice. My king has come to save me. Your king has come to save you. He's enough. He's sufficient. He's great. His life. You look at Jesus' perfection here. Friends, do you know something? As you watch your king and his righteousness and his perfection, you're seeing a picture of your own righteousness. Did you hear what I'm saying? You watch Jesus, you feel intimidated by him. You feel confronted by him because he's so perfect and he's so righteous. Do you realize that you are seeing a picture of your own righteousness? What am I saying? Don't you remember? If you trust your life to Jesus, you repent of your sin, you turn to him, you trust in him. He takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness. If he's yours and you're his, as you see him in his beauty, that's what you have crying out for you in the sight of God. Oh, rejoice. Rejoice in your Savior King. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you and we love our king. And we despair for how we don't love him enough. We want to love him more. Thank you for these pictures of our glorious Lord Jesus. Give us your spirit. Give us your spirit to be able to respond to him as we see he deserves, he's worthy of, he's trustworthy of it, he's good for it. Our kind, compassionate, true, powerful, awesome, wonderful king. Thank you, Jesus, for living for us, dying for us, rising for us. Receive us, Lord, as we come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.